Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 10 of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Today, my guest is Oliver Carr III, Ali, I call him, who is the CEO and founder of Carr Properties, a large office building development and operating company located in Washington, DC, and now in Boston, Massachusetts. Ali's company has evolved from its origins in 1994 when he came out of MIT and was a mortgage brokerage firm and then shifted into acquisitions of office buildings in the DC area. And it grew up to a point where he went public with a public company called Columbia Equity Trust and then back private in a purchase by JP Morgan's special service fund. And he's remained a private company but reverted to much more full-service company and has grown significantly since then and has had significant success with two major developments in Washington. One is Midtown Center, which was completed two years ago with Fannie Mae's new headquarters, over a million square feet, and a project that is under construction now in downtown Bethesda. It's over a million square feet, Wilson and the Elm. It's a very active developer in town. Holly talks about his background as being the son of the most prolific office developer in the 1970s and 80s, and then his decision, being the youngest son, of going a different path because his older brothers helped his father further in his business. So he decided to be a banker and then went back to grad school, started his company subsequently after that. So we have a long, good conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening. Without further ado, here's Oliver Carr. Welcome, Ali, to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, John. No, it's, a real, it's a real privilege to be sitting here with you, my uh, friend and business relation of many years. And um, I also am very humbled to be considered uh, for your podcast. So thank appreciate you. appreciate that. Well, you certainly are an icon in the city. So I will ratify that. You transitioned your company from a small real estate operating company in starting in 1994 through being a public and now private REIT. How do you see your role today as CEO of the company? Are you the thought leader for the company now, pretty much? Yeah, I'm happy to get into that, John, and can share some history on how we got started and all that as well. Just tell me what your role is today and we'll get it. We'll kind yeah. Of, we'll roll back to that. Exactly. Yeah, so my role today, I mean, you, you know me, I love the uh, new investment side of the business. Yeah. So I'm still very active there working with our team. So I'm uh, somewhat hands-on, I'd say, on the new business side. That's really where my passion is. So I spend a lot of time there and then working with our whole executive team, setting strategy for the company. So trying to identify new trends that are out there, how we can capitalize on those, 
as a team, we look at and consider new markets that might be a good fit for what we're doing here at Car Properties. So most of my time is spent on strategy and then implementation in terms of working with our investments team on new opportunities, be it existing buildings or new developments. So let's, let's roll back now. Now that you've told me where you are now, let's roll back to your origins, your childhood. And I assume that you were born in Washington. Is that correct? I was born at uh, Columbia Hospital for Women in okay. uh, 1964. So, All right. And it was a funny story. I remember always going to my mom like, how was I born at the Hospital for Women? You know, <laughs> didn't, didn't, didn't connect the dots as a little kid. Yeah, so I'm fourth generation here in D.C. You know, I'm the youngest of six kids, so five boys and one girl. Initially, we grew up in Potomac, Maryland. Potomac was very rural at the time, and um, my dad, who, you know, rose to become a major office developer here in D.C., when he started out, he actually built single-family homes, so he was a... uh, single family home builder in, you know, the Potomac area, parts of DC. Is that what his father did? His dad was actually more of an appraiser and property manager. So he, hmm. he had a company called OT car and, uh, my, so I'm the third, my grandfather right. was Oliver. Obviously my dad is Oliver, but my grandfather was more on the valuation and management side. Interesting. But anyhow, we lived in a house that my dad built in Potomac you know, they built it in the uh, late 50s, I believe. So I had a great childhood. It was a really fun place to grow up. I love being part of a big family, mm-hmm. even though, you know, when I was a kid, my oldest brother is 18 years older than I am. So, I mean, by the time I was around, you know, he was leaving the house. And um, the age gap between myself and my brother, Tom, who's the next youngest to me is six years. So, I love the big family part of it, but by the time I was heading into seventh grade, I was the only one at home. So that was a, uh, a whole, whole different experience. Yeah. When I was in my teens, we moved into D.C., so I grew up right around American University. Mm-hmm. Went to high school at Landon from fourth grade on, and then uh, went to college at Trinity up in Hartford, Connecticut. So growing up in a large family, I guess being that much younger than the rest of your Siblings, you, your influences were when you were little, probably not more when you were older in the high, in the high school. That you're more like a, an only child at that point. Is that pretty much right? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, we, um, you know, still had a lot of great family gatherings and things like that when I was when I was a kid, and mm-hmm. when I was when I was very young, I learned the value of alliances. Right. So, as the youngest, I had to find out who was going to protect me. <laughs> okay. If, if there were ever any kind of conflicts, and I'm, <laughs> I'm exaggerating about that, but um, no, again, had a had a great uh, great childhood. It was also a real learning experience to grow up, you know, around my dad, who was a very successful entrepreneur. He's a guy that faced a lot of challenges in his life. You know, didn't grow up with a lot. You know, he's part of the greatest generation. Both my parents are having served in the army in World War II. He and my mom got married, you know, right after the war, very young. He tried a lot of different things before he landed in commercial real estate. But 
you know, was an amazing self-starter. So to grow up around him and kind of listen and hear of his, you know, entrepreneurial DNA and how he would take on, you know, challenges and always be optimistic. And, you know, I grew up listening to him talk about cities and development and design. I took a lot more in than I thought I did at the time. When did you know you wanted to be in commercial real estate? Uh, And that's kind of a funny uh, story because I think I'm probably not that unique in that kids that grow up around a strong father figure, typically you're going to decide to follow in their footsteps or go in a different direction. And I decided to go in a different direction. I did major in urban studies in college, which was kind of the closest real estate related uh, major at Trinity. But when I came out, I I had my mind totally set on getting into corporate finance. So coming out of school, I went into a management training program here in D.C. with American Security Bank. Mm -hmm. ASB at the time had a great management training program. I met some wonderful people there, including John Schissel, who's our president and CFO today. John and I were in the same training program many moons ago. I was set on being in corporate. So I got out of the training program, became a corporate lender for ASB. The financial crisis and kind of the late 80s, early 90s arrived. So I graduated college in 87, went to ASB after that. And, um, you know, banks came under a lot of pressure, you know, right around 1990, as I'm sure you remember, John. Yes. And uh, of course. So I had uh, my wife, Bonnie, and I got married in 1991. She and I met in college. So combination of marriage the economy really slowing. The bank was kind of teetering at the time yeah. and was sold to Maryland National Bank. Right. I don't recall the year, probably right around two. Yeah, yes. right, right around 91. I thought it would be a great time to apply out to different MBA programs, right. you know, kind of sure. take advantage of the lull in the economy to go, you know, advance my education. I applied to a series of MBA programs and as kind of a lark, frankly, applied to the uh, MIT as a one-year master's in real estate development program. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was intriguing to me, and I was accepted. And it was very hard to say no to an institution of the quality of, of MIT. Sure. And um, so I decided to attend, and I'd say that one decision really changed my whole trajectory of my career. And um Kind of reignited what was obviously a uh, passion I did have for commercial real estate. So this was 1992. So this was simultaneous to the time that your father rolled his portfolio up into a public company, Car America, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I started at school in 91 and graduated in 92. Uh, You're spot on, John, that my dad's company, you know, which had been the private Oliver Car Company. Right. They took that company public in 1993 as, I think, initially Car America Realty Corp., and then it became Car America or Car Mm -hmm. Realty Corporation, Mm -hmm. and then became Car America. And that company was led um, initially by my dad um, and then by my brother, Tom, was CEO of that company for many years. That's the timeline. And um, when I was in school... 
I was pretty intrigued by the REIT industry, the REIT phenomenon, because um, at the time, public REITs were kind of the answer for a lot of real estate companies around the nation. The only source of equity they could find. Yeah, that needed needed a recapitalization right. event. And yep. um, uh, I was very fortunate to be at MIT with some great finance professors mm-hmm. that helped us learn a lot about the industry and really delve into the specifics of, you know, what a REIT is, you know, what's what's that business all about. So I actually wrote my thesis in 1992 on the future of the REIT industry. For better or for worse, I've kind of stayed on that track in one way or another ever since. Just out of curiosity, was, was your, your thesis, you know, did it play out the way you thought it would at the time? Or interestingly, that's an interesting... Pro- probably not, John. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I definitely thought there was going to be a lot of growth in the industry, but... I did not, I think, uh, imagine the scale it would be today. I know folks like Sam Zell did predict, you know, the size of the industry um, as it is today. Interestingly, um, his his interview, Sam Zell's interview recently, stated that he did not expect it to grow that much. He thought it would grow, but not to that scale. He said, looking back, I can't believe uh, how fast it it really took off. He knew it would be big, but not like that. So, well, I was not as prescient as Sam, <laughs> but, uh, no, anyhow. So, I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed learning about the, um, read industry in school. As I said, in my thesis work, spent a lot of time with the early, some early leaders in the industry. So I, I got a really good foundation you know, so way, you, way back when. You're coming out of graduate school and your dad's rolling up his company. So what are you thinking about at that point? Are you thinking, well, here's an opportunity or uh, not? Yeah, I'm, I, was, I was thinking it would be pretty interesting to um, work in the family business in one way or another. Right. But um, mm-hmm. at the same time, my wife and I were really happy up in New England. We, we loved the quality of life up there. And I think there was enough family already at, uh, you know, Car America. I had my father and three brothers there. So I decided, you know, the best thing for me was to kind of choose my own path. And so coming out of school, early 90s was a really difficult economy in New England. So I actually took a job with Bank One doing real estate loan workouts all across New England. Bank One was managing, uh, I don't recall the size, but a several billion dollar loan portfolio of failed banks across New England. So I was the guy, you know, helping work those out or negotiate, you know, restructures, mm-hmm. things like that. And when I look back, that was a, um, it was a difficult job, but I learned a lot really about how to always treat people with you know, respect, no matter what situation they're in. And it teaches you a lot about how to be solution oriented as well. But I think, you know, treating, treating people fairly at all times, even when they're facing really tough circumstances, Mm -hmm. um, has stayed with me ever since. So that was not my uh, dream job or, you know, I didn't have career aspirations to, you know, stay in that industry, but I learned an awful lot um, when I was there. 
it didn't, it was, interestingly, it didn't scare you about getting and becoming an entrepreneur either. Seeing entrepreneurs across the table from you struggling, saying, please help me, you know, did it steal you towards going in that direction potentially? Or what, 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 what kind of drove you to think that maybe eventually you could do your own thing? Well, I was young, right? Of course. So of course. when you're, uh, you know, mid, mid twenties, you're more inclined to take a chance. That's right. Right. But, you know, so what I saw, and it was interesting, several of my uh, former classmates from MIT saw the same thing. So roll back the tape to the early 90s. The real estate landscape looks like a nuclear bomb has gone off, right? Many people have lost their properties or they're over leveraged. They have no tenants. I mean, it was a really, really tough time. And what started out of that crisis was the formation of the CMBS market. That's right. And so I saw from my perch at Bank One, my you know friend from school, Clint Fish, saw from his job at Payne Weber, and then our you know third partner, Jim Smolanskis, was more on the construction side of the business. But mm-hmm. what we identified was CMBS can be the way out. It's a brand new financing strategy, financing tool that's emerging. And I mean, there are endless numbers of owners out there that need refinancing. So based on the emergence of the CMBS industry, we came together, decided let's start a company, which we named Car Capital. So this is 1994. We actually um, just had a little 25th anniversary uh, video, which was kind of cool. We we just had earlier this week. But um, Anyhow, we started Car Capital based on the business plan of us aligning with the early CMBS programs and being the originators and underwriters for CMBS loans. We'd never done it before, didn't have existing relationships, but um, you know, just frankly, because we thought it was a good idea and uh, through perseverance, we were able to form early relationships with Daiwa Securities and Smith Barney were our two, you know, main providers. They pulled your deals then. Yeah, we we were originating individual loans for them, right. which they would pool right. and warehouse mm-hmm. and then package and sell. Uh, and we also did some traditional, you know, commercial mortgage brokerage as well. Sure, it actually worked, <laughs> much to our surprise in the early days. This was in New England primarily, right? We were based uh, in the Boston area. But through relationships, we were doing business all all over the place. So some in California, we ended up doing business uh, with a guy. His name was Jack DeBoer, who was a major hotel Hotel. owner. You know, Mm -hmm. he's he was residence in created residence in. And then uh, he's from Wichita, Kansas. Candlewood Suites. Mm -hmm. Jack created as well. Mm -hmm. He was really the pioneer of extended stay. So somehow we got matched up with Jack. So we worked on a number of hotel refinancings for him, mostly mm-hmm. in California. Anyhow, so out of, out of the gates, we did just fine. And then, so this is again, 1994, 1995. And then um, later in the 90s, there was a lot of change in the CNBS industry. One of our providers merged into another company. So a lot of the people we knew were gone. And another uh, I don't recall why they shut down operations, but they, they got out of the business. So the Miro um, shut down in 98 and Daiwa as well. Anyhow, and, and the business 
you know, the transaction business has a lot of ups and downs. I should share that in those early years, we started strong, but then there were two years where I didn't take a paycheck. I mean, we paid our people, but when I look back at my um, <laughs> social security statements, there's a couple couple years with a goose egg on there. So um, it was hard. I mean, we started with nothing in effect. I mean, I'll, I'll get into the details here a little bit, but we were initially capitalized with equity from my dad. I went to him and told him, hey, we've got this idea. We're going to start this business. Mm-hmm. I think he put up $250,000 and uh, we used that to get started, you know, to, sure. to all the organizational get by our computers and right. um, office space. Because we were so small, we had to, um, you know, co-fund the cost of our tenant improvements where we moved in. So sounds maybe like a lot of money in 1994, but it didn't go very far. Anyhow, we, we uh, took that seed capital and that's, that's how we got started. And one point I'm very proud of is we never, never raised another dime and we've returned, you know, that initial investment probably 50 times over. That's great. You know, over the years. Yeah, so continuing the story, we decided collectively that the uh, transaction business, you know, was hard, has a lot of ups and downs. And so in the late 90s. As I well know. Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it can be very lucrative, but it um, yes. You know, you've got to be a real self-starter and it takes a certain certain kind of person. So, you know, I had a very young family and, um, you know, was all in on being an entrepreneur and sure. li- living the ups and downs of that. And it, it's it's also interesting when you start a start a company like this, you're going to have ups and downs in the in the early years. And seeing my friends from grad school that had gone to private equity firms or other big organizations doing really well financially, you definitely ask yourself, you know, did I make the right decision? Because it's it's hard. I mean, being an entrepreneur is hard. What Um, about your wife? What was her perspective of this, going through this? Yeah, so my, I'm incredibly fortunate, you know, to be with Bonnie, but I mean, she, we met in college, you know, she was my college sweetheart and right. it, it was, you know, love at first sight with her. So we've been um, a tremendous team ever since, but uh, she was really supportive. That's great. I mean, even, you know, when I, when I came home and told her I was quitting my job, I think our son, Chris was either about to be born or just had been born. <laughs> She's like, what, what exactly are you thinking about? And, uh, but after that initial conversation, I mean, she's been nothing but a tremendous supporter, you know, throughout my career. And um, that's great. It's an off, off to use comment, but, you know, really without her support all the time, I mean, through all the years, no chance we would have been able to grow the business and be as successful as we've, we've had the opportunity to be. So mm-hmm. as you know, John, I mean, life is a partnership, right? Absolutely. So um, yeah, absolutely. So what brought you to D.C.? Late 90s, I mentioned transaction business, you know, was a little up and down. So we stepped back, stepped back and said, let's uh, take a look at 
shifting our focus from transactions to the principal side of the business. So Mm -hmm. I think it was 1998, 1999, we decided let's um, develop a strategy to buy value add office. And as part of that decision, we had more relationships here in the DC area, primarily through my family. So I commuted back and forth to DC for a year from Boston with a couple of our other uh, teammates. And then 1999, I think we found our first acquisition to buy and then had a follow-on acquisition. So we basically used friends and family capital to tie up our initial acquisitions. And it was all really focused on opportunistic suburban office product, mainly in Virginia. You know, after, uh, well, I should mention also the value of relationships that one of our first partners was an entity named Halualoa. They manage um, high net worth capital on behalf of a couple of uh, billionaires. But the Halualoa relationship also came through MIT. So a very good friend of mine, Arun Chennai, was at Halualoa. And the leader of Halualoa, Mike Kasser, was also an MIT grad. Mm -hmm. So through that connection, they actually backed us in our first number of transactions, in addition to co-investors like my dad, like Jim Clark, and some other Mm -hmm. well-known high net worth folks here in the DC area. So mm-hmm. we basically started with an idea. We're able to slowly build a portfolio. And then thanks, John, to people like yourself, we grew to you know form some institutional relationships with investors like Aetna, which you, you brought to us, John. We formed a uh, programmatic joint venture with Invesco. And then, you know, about... Uh, 2000, 2001, we formed a uh, venture with JP Morgan to buy a large vacant building called Independence right. Center Remember out that. in Westfields. So our start was very scrappy, entrepreneurial. It's, uh, I call it, you know, closing kind of five transactions at one time because you're finding the acquisition. You've got to raise sponsor equity. You've got to find a institutional equity partner mm-hmm. and you got to raise the debt. So right. it's, it's a lot of planes to land of on the aircraft All carrier at one time. So that was, a, uh, again, a great learning ground for me to be able to figure all, all that out. You yeah. know, it's not easy, but it was, again, I wouldn't trade it for anything because I think learning how to be, you know, a self-starter and deal with pressure and you got to figure things out. There's no better training training ground. And it gives you, if you can make it through, it gives you a tremendous amount of confidence. Yeah, well, together we landed, I think, at least three transactions. We did two of those planes at the same time. Exactly. That had equity. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then I, at least half a dozen more. Yeah. I did that for you. So. And, and, and the art was convincing the sellers that we could make it all happen. That's right. right. So, of course. Uh, yeah. I think we helped with that a little bit. No question about it. So that was a lot of fun. So then mid-2000s come around and you, you have another strategic decision to make. The decision you're referencing, John, we ultimately you know, took our portfolio public in a, in a small office rate. 
So back to the REIT industry, as we you know started out the conversation with. How did that start? What was the thought process that brought that to the, to the Well, it, it's really back to the complexities of, of closing multiple transactions at one time that we discussed. We knew that to be successful and compete at a larger scale, we really needed programmatic capital and discretionary capital. So we evaluated the possibility of raising an investment fund. So this is, this is back in 2003 and 2004. And at the same time, we evaluated the possibility of you know, forming a small public office REIT. And at the time, public markets were pretty entrepreneurial. There were a number of smaller companies that were launching. So we settled on that as our best path forward and um, rolled up our portfolio at the time was uh, around 14, 15 buildings. What was the valuation of that, do you recall? I know that at the closing of the IPO, we raised $207 million. And I think the total enterprise value of the company was around $350, $370 million, something like that. Which is relatively small for a read. Yes, Larger than zero where we started, of course. <laughs> but uh, it was very small. So um, yes, we formed Columbia Equity Trust in 2005, and I think certainly by the number of people working there, we were the smallest office REIT on the New York Stock Exchange. I think we had a total of 14 people, uh-huh. and uh, all of our property management, all of our leasing was handled on a third-party basis mostly with uh, Trammell Crow, Joe Statinius, Spencer Stouffer, and the whole team at Trammell at the time mm-hmm. were incredibly supportive of us, played a key role as, you know, our partners in the early days. So I mentioned Joe, you know, I, I, I still miss Joe. He passed a few mm-hmm. years ago, but right. um, people like him were incredibly um, supportive of, of our efforts in those early days. So, uh, and John had a huge part in that too, John Schissel, right? John Schissel, I mean, we couldn't have done it without John. So, my great friend, John Schissel, who I'd met at American Security in 1988, John and I had gone in different directions. I'd gone to Boston, grad school, then, you know, doing my own thing. John rose through the ranks of, of commercial banking and then transitioned to be an investment banker. So he was a real estate investment banker at Wachovia, which is now you know part of Wells Fargo. Somehow in 2004, I convinced John to leave his very well-paying job <laughs> and join us as our CFO. And thankfully, John did, because without his expertise, none of this would have happened. Wasn't he on the the banking side taking you public, in essence, for Rokovia or not? Or was he not involved? He, he joined us. Uh, oh, he was uh, on your side. He was then. on our team. We, okay. Yeah, we ended up hiring Wachovia, so a right. lot of his former, former colleagues. colleagues. Okay. Uh, a guy named Jim Taylor was the lead on our transaction. Um, mm-hmm. Jim is now the CEO at Bricksmore Properties. Oh, okay. Another, you know, fantastic guy. And if Jim had, had not been part of the team, this never would have happened. But so we successfully executed the IPO. So it was, that was a very interesting experience going on the roadshow to see investors all over the country. 
having to perfect the 10 minute pitch, you know, about your business. Quarterly um, meetings, quarterly. Yeah. Statements. And then operating as a public company um, with the disciplines of public reporting and analyst calls and, yes. you know, lots of non-deal roadshow meetings. I really liked it, honestly. I mean, to me, being part of the American capital market system is a thrill, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so being public, especially as a small company, is hard. Um, you don't have a lot of margin for error in terms right. of like reporting and things like that. Did you like that as much as looking at deals and buying property or was it kind of a balance between the two for you? I've matured, John, meaning... Now my favorite thing is to build a business, right? And right. Build, build a company. Sure. Um, so I mentioned early on, I love the investment side, but, but the thrill of building a company was really pretty special. And, you know, the public markets do make you better. I think to me, there's no question about that because you've got to be on your game in terms of your operating quality, your performance. I mean, the stock price is a, a report card that you see daily, every day. Exactly. Right. And personally, I think that's healthy. There's, there's been some dynamics in the market over the last, you know, five to 10 years where there's been a disconnect between underlying office values and the values of the, of the uh, equity of, of the public office companies. Not, not all, but some, but I'd say our experience, you know, when we were public, I thought was an amazing learning experience and, you know, one that I loved, frankly, really for the challenge. And again, being, being part of the whole U.S. capital market system, it's an awesome thing. But after being public for only about 18 months, there were quite a few REIT go private transactions happening, including my family's business at Car America had gone private. Equity office was taken private in the largest you know, reprivatization. Right. And then there's a little Columbia Equity Trust. So one of our legacy partners in JP Morgan Asset Management approached us about forming kind of the old Oliver Carr company. So think think about the development, property management, leasing, you know, operating company model that my dad had started many, many years ago. The idea was to take Columbia Private, rebrand it as car properties, which we did, and then kind of reconstitute as a full-service DC office company. Was that their idea or your idea? It was a combination. It was a combined passion, I think, on both sides. And uh, as part of our go-private strategy, we were able to bring in some key professionals from Car America, including my brother Bob, who headed up development for us. Rich Greninger, who ran property management in the D.C. area, and some of his team members joined. So really, in this go-private transaction, which closed in 2007, we went from, you know, a, a good, you know, invest, investment company as a public company, but with all third-party services, mm -hmm. to a vertically integrated private company with great access to capital from J.P. Morgan and skills we'd never had before in terms of more development expertise, management in-house, and ultimately, you know, we built out a leasing platform as well. So that was fun. And um, 
We didn't see the uh, financial crisis that was right around the corner. Our timing, you know, going private in the spring of 2007 was quite fortuitous, um, given what happened to valuations in the public markets and all, you know, for all real estate. So that was a great, you know, shelter from the storm, frankly, being private uh, during those times. And our focus immediately shifted from growth to we've got to defend this fort because we valued the trust that JP Morgan had put in us in acquiring the company. And we were determined to do everything we could to preserve value and kind of get through, you know, those tough times in the 2008, 2009, which is the worst time I hope we ever see in our careers. But it was a, uh, those were dark days, as, as you recall. Well, the, the biggest challenge for, I think, most people was the amount of leverage that people had. So you came out of being a public company, so you were disciplined already because the public market said you can't go above X, X loan to value. Exactly. Um, so you were a fairly low leverage company at the time when you rolled up privately, which was a fortunate thing at the time because a lot of your compatriots uh, were in a different position. <laughs> they had to that, restructure. That's exactly right. And, you know, again, when I look back in my own career, so early 90s, I saw the horrible impacts of leverage, right? I saw people who had lost everything. Right. And then again, Coming out of the 2007 crisis, I saw what excess leverage could do to people. So, I mean, that's if you're going to build a uh, perpetual business mm-hmm. and you're going to be in development, and I can't take all the credit for this. This is John Schissel. It's his uh, mantra as well as, as my uh, partner, really, in the business. But um it's true if you're gonna if you if you're gonna run a long term business in real estate, and you're gonna be active in development, you've got to finance like your forever business, which mm-hmm. means you've got to finance conservatively. You know, keep keep your leverage kind of sub fifty percent, and yes, you may give up some returns by doing that, but you'll play the long game instead of potentially getting wiped out in a cycle. And real estate cycles happen. We're choosing, you know, a long-term game. It's amazing. I think you're taught the most in the hard times, John, and I'm sure you, you would echo that. So um, for me, I shared my experience in the loan workout business, you know, was invaluable, right? And then living through the financial crisis, you do learn a lot about people in terms of, doing the right thing, always working to protect value. Uh, in the case of JP Morgan, they couldn't have been more supportive in very tough times. And as long as we were aligned to always do our best, no matter what the circumstances were, you know, that relationship was solid. So I've been incredibly lucky, and I should say our business has been very fortunate to work with some great people and some great partners. That's very important. And being able to look people in the eye and always say you did the right thing and, you, you know, you've tried your hardest. That's uh, what you got to think about every day when you get out of bed. Did your father help you with that thought process? Or did you come about that by yourself pretty much? 
Uh, it's funny, like when I, John Schissel and I, and he and I are together every single day, so we have a lot of conversations, but also my wife. I think I'm a good combination of both of my my mom and dad. So I can't give one or the other all the, all the credit for, uh, you know, the ethical approach. I think, I think I get it from both of them, but no, it's, it's simple. Just do the right thing. Always think about other people. A mantra here at car properties is to always think like an owner. And to me, that means treat every decision like you're making it with your own money. We're not a not a, not a company driven by fees. We're a company that's all about alignment of interests and um, always representing the interests of our investors for the long term. You then evolved to raising additional capital through some, another venture with another firm. Explain that process, why, why you decided to do that, and why J.P. Morgan wanted to take a little bit off the table, or maybe maybe they had a fund that was rolling. Was that part of it, or how, how did that all evolve? So we were very fortunate, John, in that the, the fund at J.P. Morgan, which bought Carr, was um, a open-ended fund with a perpetual life. So it was not a, so it's a long-term vehicle, and that vehicle still invested with us today. After we got through the recession, we started to grow fairly quickly. We found some really interesting development opportunities, some great acquisition opportunities, we needed to scale up our capital base. We were becoming a bit of a uh, too large of a concentration for the J.P. Morgan Fund. Um, so together uh, with them, we started thinking about alternatives to expand our capital base. We looked at, do we shift some properties that are more value-add in nature into one bucket and raise capital around that and then have an income vehicle on the side Mm -hmm. um, we looked at public alternatives again. So this is kind of 2013 timeframe. And what we settled on was um, bringing in a new investor in Ohlone Hetz, which is a uh, large publicly traded real estate investment company based in Tel Aviv. So Ohlone Hetz joined us at Car Properties as an equal investor with JP Morgan in August of 2013. So they had to do a valuation of the company, basically. So in essence, it was like a roll-up in a way, but you stayed private to some extent. Is that, yeah. is that kind so, of the way you would describe the transaction? Yeah. So Car Properties was operating as a private REIT. So we'd been a public REIT. We're right. now a private REIT right. with JP Morgan's open-ended fund as our primary shareholder. Mm -hmm. And so we in effect, sold additional shares to Ohlone Hetz, who invested cash into the company. So it wasn't a you know, roll-up per se. Um, it was kind of a recapitalization of the company. And that was a one-year-plus process to get both sides comfortable with the underlying valuations, the business plan, the operating you know, forecasts, et cetera. So it, it was a... Uh, relatively large transaction. And, um, you know, those, those can take some time sure. in terms of underwriting and documentation, closing, et cetera. Yeah, we settled in a great place where the company, you know, in 2013 and still today 
is jointly controlled by J.P. Morgan and Aloni Hetz. So we've seen these two great investors and partners come together and and work extremely well as you know with shared authority over major decisions for the company. They've been incredibly supportive. So they're basically your board of directors then. Yes, our board is comprised of three people from J.P. Morgan, three from Maloney Hetz, Rebecca Owen, former general counsel right. at Clark, and myself. But the voting members are the Maloney Hetz and J.P. Morgan members. But great board. I mean, we're we're blessed to have uh, so much experience on our board. You've got some of the best minds in U.S. real estate in the J.P. Morgan team who are seeing every market in the country, every kind of property, every kind of transaction. Sure. And then in Aloni Hetz, you're seeing a um, global you know, real estate investor who's very good at building companies. So it's a tremendous match of expertise from both investors. They've worked great together. Today, we've grown quite a bit. I mean, today we're about a three and a half billion asset company and just over two billion in equity. We've raised over 750 million of equity from our partners just in the last, call it 24 months. So if you look at CAR versus most of our public peers, we've been uh, able to raise a lot of growth capital um, due to the tremendous support that that our shareholders are providing for us. So great. So we've been... uh, exceptionally fortunate to have such great shareholders and such tremendous support. So you're parlaying that capital, not just in acquisitions and development, but you have a new, a couple of new ventures that you're going into, including Wave Office. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that a little bit and why you're doing it and what. what yeah, what, I'd, I'd be happy to, John. Yeah. So most of the capital has gone to fund development. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I'll speak to that for a minute if, sure. if that's okay. So, yep. I mean, when you look back over the last few years, we've really kind of found our footing as developers and have grown a lot. So, in DC, we developed Midtown Center, which is a million foot project that now houses the um, global headquarters for Fannie Mae. We're building the Wilson and the Elm in Bethesda, Maryland right now, which is almost a million foot mixed use project, office and residential. Dominating the skyline in Bethesda. (laughs) And there's a funny story around that because my wife and I live in Bethesda. Our deal was we would not be able to see that project from our home. To date, I'm successful. So (laughs) keep keeping my marriage intact. Um, (laughs) Cannot see the project. I also make sure my wife doesn't walk too far from our home where she could <laughs> see the building. You know? But uh, I'm, I'm kidding about that. But um, yeah. no, we've we've had success with some great large scale projects like Midtown, like the Wilson and the Elm, and we also have expanded up into Boston um, in the last eighteen months mm-hmm. and have an amazing project up there called One Congress. We're partners in one Congress with National Real Estate Advisors, and then a group called HYM, which is our local Boston development partner. They're they're fantastic people. But so we've had a lot of success with large-scale projects that are having a real impact on their communities. So we're, you know, changing 
communities for the better in terms of uh, Midtown lifted up, you know, a central part of D.C. that largely was characterized by some older stock government kind of vintage buildings. The Washington Post headquarters was on the site. Um, and we're activating that with amazing street retail. And we're now, doing doing the same in Bethesda and, and in Boston. Was the equity for the two large deals in Washington self-funded? Or did you raise third-party equity on those? Everything is self-funded. So when we're going to make a new investment, if we don't have the capital on hand, uh, so we operate with a large unsecured line of credit. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we don't have the capital on hand, then we will sell more shares to our investor base and then use that capital to deploy into whatever the you know, particular investment is. Mm-hmm. And one, one point I should have made earlier, John, um, is that uh, a couple of years ago, we expanded our capital base um, with another um, Israeli investor, Klal Insurance. Um, so Klal is a... Uh, uh, shareholder in the company today as well. Um, are they common equity? Are they uh, preferred? Common. common. Yeah, yeah. We're we have a very simple capital structure. We're all common equity, unsecured uh, credit facility, and then we have some property level debt as well. Anyhow, so we've we've most of our capital we've raised has gone to fund these large scale development projects, and then turning back to your question about Wave Office. So that is our kind of venture into the flexible office space business. Wave is meant to fill a gap between traditional office and co-working. Mm-hmm. So it's really nice pre-built suites with great common area amenities that we will rent on a you know one year plus basis. But it's easy. You know, it's a short form license agreement. We don't charge anything other than rent. I mean, so there's no, uh, the office business can be complicated in terms of charging expense pass-throughs and things like that. This is simple. It's just just base rent. And then our customers have access to a tremendous environment, a great place to work with top-notch, you know, conferencing space, great technology systems, Mm -hmm. and they have access to all of our in-building amenities, just like any other customer of ours would have. So, do you incentivize these users to become tenants eventually, um, as full-time tenants? I mean, do you give us any kind of okay? You can sign this for a year and a half, two years. We would love to have you as a full-time tenant too. So this is, you know, I mean, I would assume that your business plan here is to to seed larger, longer, longer-term tenants. Is that somewhat the thought process? Yeah, that, that's exactly right, John. I mean, we see our Wave Office product or co-working really as like variable flow space. And what I mean by that is every company out there is either growing or shrinking. They're not staying the same, kind of by definition, right? And um, the traditional office lease really doesn't match up with that pattern of growth. So our view is that most companies would love to have, you know, some permanent space they commit to for the long term and then some variable flow space that they can use 
mean, let's say you're a law firm that's got a team flying in from another office to work on a particular case for a year or two, or you're a um, consulting firm in town on on a research project, or it's those kinds of needs that are perfect for flexible space. So we, when we look at office, we think it's really important that every building have some component of flexible workspace, both to meet the needs of our existing large customers that need, you know, short-term space for whatever reason. And then back to your point, John, space to incubate small growing companies that we then hope will be you know, large long-term customers of ours. So we think it's awesome. We think it's um, the future of the business, you know, having some, some component of flexible workspace. And uh, we, we think it's really important. So going back a little bit to the, uh, the strategy change when you uh, went private, you brought in development services, you brought in property management, and now as you're looking at deals, I mean, you know, you were an acquisitions company when I first worked with you. Now you're probably more, you've kind of gone more of a development company as opposed an operator now as far as new business. So yeah. it's, what's the balance of new business today? Are you looking about 50-50 on acquisitions and development or more development? Or, what, or is, are you gauging it based on what you're seeing in the marketplace, specifically based on the sub-market you're in? Primarily, we're we're gauging our growth, and you know, based on the opportunity. So we're not. I wouldn't say we have a preference over development versus an acquisition. Excuse me. It's all about where the relative returns are and the risk. So, and also balancing the fact that new buildings are better, meaning they're more efficient, they're more sustainable. They're perfect in terms of, you know, offering tremendous light and air and air quality and things, you know, that are critically important to our customers today. Mm-hmm. So we, we probably favor development a little bit uh, due to those aspects. But generally, we're looking for the best, best opportunity at the time. So it could be there's a great existing building that has the features we're looking for in an investment or it could be a site that we think is fantastic from a locational perspective sure. and um, just thinking about what it could be. But um, if it's okay, let me give you one more insight, John, into kind of how we think about office sure. today. So mm-hmm. we've really evolved our thinking about this and um, we are an operating company. We're, I mean, we're an office company. At the end of the day, we're only as good as our customers are. So we are now intensely focused on delivering the best possible customer experience that we can. Mm -hmm. So internally at CAR, we only want to own buildings where we can offer what we call the CAR experience. So it's first class interior designs, great amenities for our customers, meaning first-class fitness centers, great rooftop decks, areas in the building where our customers can have impromptu meetings. We're integrating food and beverage into our public spaces. And then we've, we've really, uh, our team's done a great job utilizing technology to advance things like you can order 
uh, so we've built a car car app. It's the car properties app that you can order take home dinners from the app that are delivered to the building for you. We've negotiated agreements with several food providers. You can order lunch that's delivered to the building. So it's very convenient for you to pick it up. You can sign up for fitness classes, you know, personal training, yoga. Uh, Is that in your office or you go down to the gym in the building typically? That's in the gym in the building, but we'll sponsor classes for the building. Mm -hmm. And then folks can sign up individually for personal training. We'll have really cool events in the building. Um, you know, a speaker series or a wine tasting or a beer tasting. This is portfolio wide. You're doing this. We're, yeah, we're rolling it out at our buildings one at a time. So the building you're sitting in at 1615L, which we call the hub, we have rolled it out here and we're now expanding it out to our whole portfolio. Mm -hmm. But our mission is really to, to create a brand in office where we're known for providing great service for our, for our customers and um, unique experiences, great amenities. So coming back to the, your question, John, about buying versus building, we are fairly agnostic about that. But what we care deeply about is being able to offer this car experience mm-hmm. in anything we do, be it building it or buying it. We want to, if we're going to buy an existing building, we want to make sure it's got the, the bones, as we call it in real estate, to accommodate, you know, all the amenities and services and great experience that we're, we're all about. Well, what, what I'm hearing and what we've talked about in the past is this is your father's experience in the hotel business, which seems to have kind of melded into your business here. This, it, it's a, it feels more like a a guest approach for a hotel operator. Is that kind of the theme, the thought process a little bit that's coming, carrying forward? I, I think that's uh, spot on. So again, having the benefit of growing up around my dad and you know hearing his views on a lot of things, that definitely helped to spark my interest in um, uh, really merging hospitality into office. But it's not just me, John. I mean, it's our whole team. We're observing the world around us sure. and we're seeing hospitality is everywhere and everything is about the experience of the individual. And I think when you look at office as an industry, we haven't changed very much. And I don't think we've been as customer oriented or as customer friendly as we could have been. Mm-hmm. So for us, we think it's a tremendous opportunity to kind of reimagine office and reimagine the workplace. That's why we're so focused on providing amazing service, amenities, the technology backbone to make it all happen. And then to your point, we've been working with designers that come out of the hotel industry. So we're trying to kind of shift a bit so that when we're uh, renovating an existing building or building a new building, when you walk into those common areas, so the lobby or the roof deck or a lounge or conference center, fitness center, you're going to feel like you're in a hotel. That's what I felt building. like when I walked in today. Well, to be honest with you, you're putting a smile on my face. Right? <laughs> that, that's, that's what you were supposed to uh, experience. And, you know, we layer in, you know, music and a scent, which you may or may not have noticed. It's very subtle. But those are the uh, 
you know, we're, we're trying to be a forward thinking company that's just incredibly focused on the experience of our customer. So you say you're an office company, but you're developing a project in Bethesda that has residential, retail. I don't think you have a hotel on that project, but you have, uh, you know, the Midtown Center property. You've got a significant retail presence on the street level. So how are you melding the other uses in and are you partnering with other companies to do that? Are you hiring third party management? How are you integrating other uses into your developments? Yeah, it's a great question, John. So. Um... Uh, we think that the street experience is incredibly important for our customers, but also it's important for the city or the communities wherever our buildings are based. So we're working really hard on creating a you know great design of street level you know retail and um, then attracting you know fantastic operators. So our view is. Um, we would rather have the right operator in place at a, you know, let's call it a fair rent for both sides than having operators were less interested. You know, they may not activate the street or create the right experience for our customers upstairs mm-hmm. at the highest rent. So we're, we're all about let's create the right experience at the street. And um, why do we think that way? It's because our customers are upstairs, right? So we're, again, if that's your mindset, if everything you do is about the experience of your customer upstairs or office customers, or in the Mm -hmm. case of residential or residential customers, we're going to do everything for them, you know, to create that special environment. So um, in the case of retail, we own it, we curate it, we work with great, you know, outside leasing teams, like John Asadorian and others, to bring together our retail customers. And uh, our team internally is excellent at that in terms of the relationships they've built. So that's all our team. That's definitely not so you not, manage not me. You will manage the retail. <clears throat> yeah, we manage the retail. And then in the case of mixed-use projects, so we are very open to developing more mixed use, particularly with residential and and commercial together. Mm -hmm. Um, We think those two uses plus great ground floor retail really can activate a place. So we think they're really complimentary. And um, uh, especially with the hospitality overlay that you have, because it's it's coming into the residential business as well, of course. It's everywhere. But I agree with your point. For example, at our Bethesda project, that's, uh, you know, 365,000 feet of commercial office um, and then about 450 residential units. We will have an amazing shared fitness facility that's about 10,000 feet. But it's those kinds of shared amenities between the two uses that can be really successful. We love... uh, kind of the energy that mixed use projects can bring to a location. And we have not nosed into hotel. We may do that one of these days, but it hasn't hasn't been our primary focus. I mean, we are first and foremost an office company. That's what we do. And um, if we've got a site that makes more sense to build on a mixed use basis, We will certainly do that with a leaning towards uh, commercial and residential and great street retail. 
So you didn't answer my question on residential management. Who, for instance, at, at, in Bethesda, you have a residential property that it's a separate tower. So is that managed by someone else? Yeah. Yes. Thanks for the reminder on that, John. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so one of our credos here is know what you don't know, right? Of course. <laughs> so yes, we've had the benefit of partnering with Insight Development. Insight is developing the retail tower in Bethesda. They are fantastic. So CAR, we own the project and right. we've brought in Insight as our uh, fee partner to oversee development and um, get that property ready for lease. And then in terms of management and leasing, um, we brought in Bazuto. You know, they're the best. So Bazuto will be uh, operating that property for us. Okay. So know what you don't know, John. Of course. <laughs> of course. So in the future, you would do third party on those situations. In retail, you've decided to keep in-house, but residential, you're not, uh, yeah, not quite no. ready to think that way because uh-huh. some of your competition have done that. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's several developers in town that have done, they brought property management people in from residential folks to build their own team internally. And you did that on the office side. So sounds like maybe down the road yeah. that might poss- possibly be something you'd be interested in. Doing. Yeah. And I mean, we'll continue to evolve as a company. Of course. I mean, we want, um, we're focused on results, you know, meaning the experience of our customers and returns for our shareholders as well. And, uh, you know, today the best setup is, is to, to partner with best in class providers like Bazuto, like Insight in the future, as we grow, that could change, but we have, we have no plans to go in that direction any, anytime soon. Okay. Talk about your management as far as your people internally, how you, delegate decision-making and, and how much risks that certain people have within the company. Do you have different teams for different disciplines? I mean, how do you, how do you set up your company? Talk about that a little bit and how, how much you know, latitude do people have as far as making decisions in, in, among your team? Yeah, so we're purposely a very flat organization. We, are not, we try not to be a top-down company. Mm-hmm. I think when it comes to making important leasing or, or investment decisions, we are a bit top-down, um, meaning that our executive team ultimately makes those decisions. But we're organized, I'd say, in a fairly traditional manner, John, with you know, disciplines including development, leasing, property management, accounting. Those groups are all run by great leaders within the particular discipline. So they, they run the show, they, they run their groups, and where the uh, executive leadership team gets involved is really, again, around major capital decisions, annual budget, things like that. The way we're governed, you know, together with our shareholders, are at our executive level, we've got discretion to enter into transactions of a certain size, so a certain size lease, certain size acquisition, certain size financing. Over a certain level, it goes to our operating committee, which is a subset of our board of directors. And then for transactions, you know, of an even larger scale, that will go to our full board. So I'd say our governance is fairly typical and uh, 
we try to empower our people, you know, to make great decisions, think like an owner and execute. We just had a company, we call it an annual kickoff a few days ago. And Mm -hmm. I really sat back and just marveled at how many great people we have and all the skills we've developed in technology and marketing in leasing in portfolio management it's it's a little different it's pretty than cool the, to see <laughs> a little different than the company that that you and i were working together on it, uh, back in car it, capital days exactly no we've we've grown a lot it's really fun to see we work hard on our culture and on creating the right incentives for folks because at the end of the day we're we're only as good as our people which is you know, and again, an oft-used phrase, but it's uh, it couldn't be more true in our case. And we're we're really fortunate to have a great team, people with a lot of passion who care about the mm-hmm. company. So an, uh, another trend that's going on, and you you touched on it a little bit, is what I is the anachronism ESG, which is used quite a bit today. And I've often I'm curious as to how people measure that in today's environment? Because last year, many corporate executives came together and wrote this statement that the bottom line financially isn't the most important thing anymore. It's now more than that. There's more, we're giving back, we're doing something for society, we're, do, you know, we're trying to help the environment, both race and sex relations you know, with women and the whole you know, process there. So how do you measure that, or do you, is that is that important to you as a company? And you know, how do you look at that? Of course, it's it's critically important, and I think it's it's um, more important every day, John. And it's not, you know, we care about it not just because it's you know popular today, but we we think it's the right thing to do. And so, I mean, I'll just give you a couple of examples. So, you know, everything we build or that we own is either a LEED certified building or an Energy Star rated building. So that to us is kind of the baseline, right? But we're pretty big on thinking outside of the box. Like, yes, those are the certifications in our industry, but how can we do better? What, what else can we do? So today we have been pretty forward thinking in the installation of solar. So most of our downtown buildings today do have solar installations. So we're taking those opportunities very seriously to you know, change our, uh, our way of thinking about energy. And then we pass that savings on to our customers. We're looking into how do we improve air quality in our buildings? We want to go with the most advanced air filtration systems we can. Because again, thinking about the individual and about our customers they care about having great light and air, about us working hard to manage costs for them, which we're doing through energy savings. And then there have been a lot of studies that have shown that people's productivity improves through you know, clean air and access to light. So we're, we're quite focused on whenever we're building a building to make sure there's terrific light and air and then making sure the environment within our buildings is as healthy as possible. And we're Starting the discussion now on is it possible for us to go to be more of a uh, carbon neutral company? You know, how could we do that? 
So those are conversations that are happening as we speak. And then when it comes to community, we're pretty active in giving back and we've taken a little bit of a different approach there. So we've decided we want to celebrate kids in the city and support kids in the city that don't have the same opportunities that you and I had. So kids that are growing up where it may be a single family home or they may be trapped in a cycle of poverty, just kids growing up in tough circumstances. So we identified a school in D.C., which we think works miracles. It's called the Washington Jesuit Academy. So it's a Jesuit-sponsored school, but all the kids who go there are, you know, from all backgrounds and all religions. So it's not a, um, it's not a mandate that the kids who go there be, be Catholic, for example. But anyhow, this school does a great job of, of giving, you know, in this case, young boys, the opportunity at a life, at a life. So it's a intense education. It's a uh, third grade through eighth grade school. They keep the kids for, you know, 12 plus hours a day and then stay with them. I think they go to school six days a week. Uniforms? Yeah, uniforms, but they're taught, they're taught about life. You know, it's not just academics. It's how to conduct yourself around all different kinds of people, how to build self-confidence. That's great. Yeah. Then the school will place these kids into, you know, tremendous private high schools in the region. The school tracks them through high school and then also tracks these kids into college. So it's an amazing place that's 100% supported by donations that gives these young men the opportunity to, to really thrive. So we chose Washington Jesuit Academy as kind of our you know, main charity, and I wouldn't call them a charity. They're much more than that. So we... we sponsor the school, but we thought about how can we leverage our support and do more. So what we landed on, and it's, you know, how do, how do you have fun at the same time? We started a concert called Car Cares, where we will fund the cost of the event. We will bring in the band. So we, we've had concerts the last few years at the Hamilton downtown with a, uh, a great band and singer in Maggie Rose, who's a wonderful talent who grew up in this area mm-hmm. and is now making her way in Nashville. But anyhow, we sponsor the event and then we have been able to raise capital around it, you know, to support the school. So we've raised something in the neighborhood of 300000 for the school through these concerts the last couple of years. So we're trying to find opportunities like that in the community where we we can really target our efforts and make a difference. Have you or any of the senior or even junior executives in the company gone to meet with some of these young men at the school and spend any time with them at all? We have. So we've had um, a bunch of students come spend the, you know, spend the day here at CAR to see what this is all about right. and, mm-hmm. and what it's, what it's like to be in a, uh, in a real estate company and in yeah. a professional environment. Sure. And then we've also you know, myself and others have gone out to the school to, you know, share thoughts on experiences or uh, mm-hmm. just kind of plug in with these guys. But it's um, super fulfilling for us to be involved with them. And it's amazing 
to see what an organization like that can do for kids' lives. That's wonderful. So let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the Washington D.C. real estate market. What your feeling is, and we've seen Amazon come in and make a big commitment to Crystal City, of course, and the impact of that has waves, I think, around the region as far as the perception of Washington D.C. is. You know, it was predominantly a government city, and maybe it's now moving a little bit more private sector. How do you see you taking advantage of that or moving your growth strategies along those lines? Yeah, so in our business, John, we are very focused on owning and investing and operating in what we call innovation-based markets. So we're here in D.C., obviously, which we think meets that criteria. We've expanded up into Boston, Mass., which has an amazing innovation-based economy with growing technology companies, biotech companies, amazing universities that are kind of the foundation mm-hmm. of, of all of this uh, innovation. And we're also looking at additional markets that have similar characteristics that we can expand into. So back to D.C., our view is that D.C. is a great long-term market and definitely has the um, seeds of innovation that we're referring to. It doesn't have the technology growth and biotech growth that some other markets around the country have, not today. But we think the Amazon you know, relocation to, or expansion into D.C., other tech-based companies that have moved here are kind of proving out that the talented workforce is here. And that's the, you know, people are the most important resource for any growing company, especially in technology and biotech. So we think all the seeds are here for DC to really take off as a, uh, as a true innovation market with all the growth characteristics that go along with that. Today, I'd say the market's a little bit overbuilt and demand is a little slower just because um, we haven't quite completed that transformation. But we're very, uh, very positive and productive on the long-term outlook for DC. And so we love this market and you know, we'll be here forever. You know, how are you dovetailing into that tech growth? Are you looking at markets that are, you know, meeting the customer need in that, in that space. So for instance, you look at the Dulles corridor and you've got the internet backbone there along Route 28 uh, next to Dulles Airport. In seeing your portfolio over the last many years, that I've, you were very active in that market at one time and not now. And so uh, you seem tend to be now more you know, urban and you know, metro-driven, et cetera. Uh, with the expansion of the Silver Line out west, does that make you think that maybe, you know, because of the tech growth uh, out there, is there potential for you to expand your footprint into those markets potentially and looking at the opportunities? Yeah, it's, it's, it's possible, John. I'd say we, um, we are an urban company. So today we're really focused on placemaking, on the customer experience, and being active in markets that have, again, these innovation-based demand characteristics. We could um, 
expand out into the, you know, kind of our technology corridor, which right. is the Dulles Toll Road that you reference. I guess the uh, challenge there, at least in our view, is there's still plenty of land. And, you know, in terms of locating around great retail and amenities, you've got Reston Town Center where Boston Properties and others have done a tremendous job. That's a real place. It's very difficult for us to break into that market at this point. And there are areas within Tyson's Corner, which I think are emerging to have real transit and great quality of life hubs. But I'd say uh, all things considered, we still like the city and then we like uh, markets like a Bethesda, Maryland. So just speaking about Bethesda for a second, it's got everything. It's got great transit. It's got commercial. It's got residential. It's walkable. There is a tremendous, you know, single family home population right on the perimeter of Bethesda. So we like places that are either 24 hour like downtown mm-hmm. or it's funny to say that about downtown because downtown D.C. used to be the opposite of 24 hour. That's but right. it's, it's changed and it's much more, much more 24 hour today. And then a place like Bethesda, which is a great, you know, live, work, play location. So we're not as interested in a pure suburban play without the amenities and without Mm -hmm. some culture of the the city, but uh, in areas that have the attributes of, you know, a great mix of use and there's a real there there, that's where we want to be. So shifting to your personal philosophy, uh, when you are engaged in multiple projects, how do you see the balance among family, business and giving back? Anything you'd like to share about that? I really care about doing the right thing and, you know, giving people your full respect. I think that's how you're going to be judged. So in terms of like personal philosophy, and I I definitely learned that from my parents. I was incredibly fortunate to have my parents and be brought up that way. But so that's, that's definitely how I see the world. And we work pretty hard here. So, I mean... My passions have been my family and my work. Mm-hmm. And I may, may not play as much golf as the next guy, things like that. I mean, I like, you know, like having fun and sports, but um, my family and growing this company have been my, my main passions. And I care deeply about both. And I'm, I'm active with both. You know, on the charitable side, you know, I've served on... Uh, school boards and nonprofit boards. So I'm, I'm active there. I feel a huge sense of gratitude to my graduate school program at MIT that I attended. So I stay very active there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we formed an executive board to help the school tie in a little better to the industry. So sure. I really, I enjoy that. And then uh, other, you know, passions that are related to charity is um, my oldest son and I have run the Boston Marathon five times, raising money for for charity. And it's great. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunately, uh, we love giving back. We love doing it. It started, you know, there's always tough stories behind this, but um, my oldest brother passed away, I guess now about seven years ago. So we first ran it. Uh, with Dana Farber 
to raise money. He, he had a, a cancer-related disease. So we raised money for Dana-Farber doing that. And then a very dear friend of ours, actually one of my former partners, Jim Smolanskis, we're very close to Jim and his family. He, unfortunately, is dealing with early onset Alzheimer's. So we've seen you know, how destructive that disease is. So we've run you know, to raise money for, for Alzheimer's. So mm-hmm. um, those you know, have been labors of love running um, those marathons, but that's turned into something that's really important you know, for me and for our family is how can we, you know, support organizations like Dana-Farber, like the um, Alzheimer's Association that are, you know, fighting so hard to find, you know, cures for both diseases and kind of doing our, our part there. This year, I'm not running, but both my sons are. So I'm really, really That's proud great. of those guys. You've asked me in the past, of course, about the Urban Land Institute, and I've hopefully opened some doors for you there, which is good. And I appreciate your help and support there for our industry, which is great. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to get more involved at ULI and it's a great organization. They do amazing work and um, you've certainly given back a great deal to ULI, John. So thanks for everything you do. If you were sitting down with your 25 year old self today, what would you tell, what would you tell him? I don't know if I'd want to tell him anything. <laughs> <laughs> so your, uh, your children are what? They're, they're about that age now, almost, yeah? Yeah, no, my uh, oldest son, our oldest son, Bonnie, and, and my oldest son, Chris, is 26, and okay. our youngest son, Andy, is 19. So right. I think um, it's kind of interesting. So, you know, we all learn a lot through experience over time, but I think the most important thing when you're young, and I say this to my son, Chris, is... Um, Take advantage of every opportunity out there. Learn as much as you can. But also, don't be afraid to take some risk. I mean, it's actually the one time in your life before you have too many obligations. If you've got a great idea, you know, you think you can change the world or, you know, or follow your dream and something you're really passionate about, go for it. That's the time to do it. Because later, you know, we've, You've got families, you've got a lot more bills to pay. Obligations. So I think when you're young, it's great to explore, figure out what you really love, and it's okay to take some risk. So that, that's what I would tell them. I think the one, if there's one thing I've learned in my career, it's just don't give up. Just persevere. Because... I've been between a rock and a hard place multiple times in terms of, you know, trying to keep a business alive when we we're very small and not taking a paycheck, as I described, or being so close on a major investment opportunity that goes the wrong way. And you've got to fight and claw to bring that back around. I would say just never give up and persevere. That'll take take you far. Two more questions. What are your biggest wins and what are your biggest failures in in your career? What would you, can you identify those? And then maybe a surprising event or two that happened, something that you just didn't expect that came out of the, out of nowhere, either good or bad and how you dealt with it. 
one of the biggest wins professionally was when we succeeded in bringing you know Fannie Mae to our Midtown Center project. That is one of those stories of you know perseverance and interesting twists and turns where we had this amazing downtown project. We were competing for the uh, Fannie Mae lease, which is you know seven hundred and fifty thousand feet. It was, I think, the largest private sector lease ever done in Washington at the time, you know, a a few years ago, we were competing against some existing buildings. And I think at the end of the day, Fannie Mae decided that the combination of cost, you know, as a new building and also a little bit of uncertainty about could we hit their timeline caused them to choose to relocate to an existing building. So there was a big competition Mm-hmm. was whittled down from call it six competitors down to three and then ultimately down to two. And I'll never forget, you know, we're in the midst of all this. And I got a call on a Sunday evening from the CEO of Fannie Mae who said, we love everything that you guys have done. Great project, but we're choosing to go in another direction. But he left me with the words, but I may live to regret this. (laughs) And so that, uh, to me, that meant there's still some hope, right? If if the um, CEO of Fannie Mae and their leadership team really thought that our our project had a lot of potential. The next day, so this is, you know, the Christmas holidays. The next day we came into the office, got together with our board and dug in to see how we could revise our economic package and move up our timing a little bit. So we were able to make some moves on on both fronts and ultimately worked with Fannie Mae to, you know, bring them to Midtown Center. So that was a uh that was a massive win for the project and for the company. And that was an example of, you know, just persevere. Don't don't give up until it's over. And we're huge believers in, you know, being a a good competitor and playing ethically and always doing the right thing. In this case, the door had not quite shut yet. So we still had an opportunity to uh, improve our offering Mm -hmm. and that, that paid off. So if you could put a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? I think if it was one word, John, can be a statement, a word, whatever you want to say. It's tough when you're trying to hold me to one, <laughs> to one, to one statement. I think I would say persevere. You know, I mean, it's uh, having learned to keep trying, no matter what you're up against, is mm-hmm. so valuable. So that would be, you know, if I had to choose one word, persevere. which isn't your direction, but I would say persevere. Another would be thank you. I mean, this industry, this community have been just a great place to work in. There's so many good people, and I feel incredibly blessed that we landed here. Uh, sometimes it's just good fortune on you know where your company is based, but the D.C. area has been my home for most of my life. And it's just such a wonderful place for our business. And again, it's all about the people. 
So that would be the second thing. Great. Ali, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. It's been a wonderful interview. I appreciate it. And listeners, uh, thank you for listening. Thanks, John.